Nine rounds of golf for $90? Yep. The Minnesota Golf Passport is back and available now at garagelogic.com. As a golf passport card holder, you're entitled to nine 18 whole rounds of golf for just one low price of $90. Supplies are limited, so just go to garagelogic.com and type keyword passport. A $300 golf value for just 90 bucks. Now you got it. GarageLogic.com. Keyword passport. You cannot stop him. He'll just make a move. Joe Suchere. I'm pleased that Amor Towles is joining us. Hello, sir. Hi, how are you? Very good. I'm sorry I missed you a couple of weeks ago when you were in Hopkins. Yeah, it was it was fun to be there, but uh, it's nice to have a chance to talk with you now. Uh, first book was Rules of Civility. That's right. And the second book was the uh, fascinating uh, A Gentleman in Moscow, which I think, I mean this as a compliment, to me it, it shared a kinship with a book called All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Dewar. I don't know if you ever read that book. I, I mean, I certainly I would take that as a compliment. Thank you. Uh, I, I can't tell you, I, I told you in an email that I thought Gentleman was the best book I ever read, and I've been thinking about that. And I would more accurately say that I think it's the most interesting book I ever read because I never sensed that the Count, Count Rostov, who's imprisoned in the Metropole Hotel, I never sensed he was really at battle with anyone. Uh, was that is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a certain aspect to his character where he, he tries to sort of stay above the fray, as it were, um, you know, I think early in the story, this doesn't give anything away, but it's mentioned that as a child, he loses a checkers game and tips over the board and, you know, ends up in his bedroom in tears. Right. And his grandmother, the countess, comes and says to him, you know, there's, there's nothing good I can tell you about losing. Right. But why would you give, you know, that other, your opponent, the satisfaction in, in, in the way that you behaved? And, and that he kind of, as a child, adopts that as kind of a... a a mindset. So yes, every time he has a setback, I think his why you know his in, his instinct is to try to rise above it. Because why would you give your opponent the satisfaction of of seeing you uh, you know express dismay or or, dis- or disappointment or a sense of loss? I, I hate to be this flowery, and everyone who knows me will tell you that I I, I am I'm not normally, but. I sensed that it was. I was almost like I was going through an art museum, and with each, with each passing year or decade of his life, it was like I was in a new room of art that was fascinating to watch. And that, that's where I got the sense of enjoyment from a gentleman in Moscow watching watching the count's character develop to become just one hell of a character, one hell of a guy. Well, thank you. And uh, it's certainly, if you take a premise of a book and say you're going to trap the protagonist in a building for 30-plus years and, and 95% of the, of the events in the book are going to take place in that building, it, it, it does create a, a challenge, obviously, for the author um, in, in that you, you want to create a narrative that engages the reader. They don't feel claustrophobic. They don't get frustrated. They don't get bored. And uh, the great thing about a grand hotel is that even in the Soviet era uh, in Moscow, the world tends to come through the hotel. And so there is that opportunity to, within a single building, to try to give the reader, as you say, this sort of adventure of of exploring uh, uh, different aspects of art or different architectural spaces, food, music, relationships, um, 
trying to bring as much of the richness of life as possible into what is a very confined physical space. Didn't the state claim the hotel and then realize that that would give communism a bad name if people saw it in, its, in the state they had it in and then they yeah. restored it? <laughs> yeah, Joe, that's absolutely right. What, they, what happened is, uh, is when the communists took over Russia at the end of the First World War, at the end of the Russian Revolution, uh, they, they moved the capital of Russia from St. Petersburg to Moscow. And uh, that posed a big problem for them because there were no government buildings really to speak of in Moscow at the time. So they seized the, the best hotels in the city and turned them into bureaucratic offices. But, as you point out, very quickly, soon after, as ambassadors began to show up and trade representatives and sophisticated visitors from the West, they realized that if they put them in crummy hotels... Mm-hmm then those people would go back to London and Paris and New York with the news that the revolution was a mess. So they absolutely restored the glamour and luxury inside the Metropole Hotel, which had been opened in 1905 as the best hotel in Russia. They restored that glamour so that when Westerners came to Russia throughout you know, the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, they would get the sense of, of luxury and abundance, and, and, and that would make them impress them with, with the communist mission, as it were. What are the reasons I so uh, urgently... Did you ever come through here on a book tour for gentlemen, the Twin uh, Cities? Ju- uh, just for that, the, the, the visit that you mentioned recently, okay. uh, that, was, that was my first stop in, in, uh, in, in the tour. Yeah. Well, good. I don't have to chastise myself for missing you then. You didn't come through on a conventional book tour back in That's 2016. Right. One of the reasons I wanted to speak with you so urgently is uh, ever since Russia became such... Uh, almost a daily part of the United States news cycle. And I began to recommend to listeners four books and then added years. And the four books I recommended were three novels by a guy named Tom Rob Smith. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I don't know his work. Child 44, uh, The Secret Speech, and Agent 22, and their extraordinary look. They're an extraordinary look at Russia in the 50s and 60s. They're novels, but they're, I think you'd enjoy them. And then Red Notice by a guy named Bill Browder. Sure, I certainly know that book, yeah. Yeah, you might have known him in your investment life, for all I know. We never overlap, but, I, but yes, I certainly know well who he is and, 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 and know his book well, too. And then along came a gentleman in Moscow, uh, and I just thought if readers read these books, they would really have a deeper understanding of the, of the country that uh, the world is dealing with. And yeah. uh, I, I learned so much just from gentlemen in that sense. I mean, I think you're right that uh, that that broadly, as it's, it's sort of ironic that 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 for much of our lifetime, yours and mine, uh, Russia was uh, was our our greatest opponent, as mm-hmm. it were, um, during the Cold War, and you know, in our youth and uh, into into our early adulthood. Um, despite that, despite the fact that Russia was our biggest sort of global opponent, there's very little familiarity in America broadly with Russian history or. Uh, you know the Russian culture. Um, the the most sophisticated participants kind of may have read the Russian novels, which has given them a glimpse. But otherwise, Russia primarily appeared in things like James Bond movies. And, uh, so we we really don't have a very strong sense. And and you're right. I think there's an opportunity for Americans to read on Russian culture and have a a different angle on what's going on. And probably the, the single biggest example of that for me is that um, to under sort of understand you know the Russian mindset is we take great pride, understandably, in the, the success of our efforts in the Second World War, in, in, in stopping totalitarianism, in t- uh, freeing Europe, uh, 
and, and the sacrifices that were made by the greatest generation in America to achieve those ends. We are very proud of that as Americans. It's a very important part of our identity, our culture, and our ongoing you know, history. Um, but uh, if you ask most Americans how many, uh, first of all, Russia was our ally in that war. Many mm-hmm. Americans forget that. Mm-hmm. But if you say, you know, how many uh, Russians died in the course of that war versus Americans, well, uh, most don't know. The, the reality is that uh, 20 million Russians died uh, to win the Second World War, um, and half of those were civilians. Mm-hmm. And in, in the United States, 500,000 uh, Americans died in the course of that war, and they all were soldiers. So if you think about all that, the pride we have, as I say, the, the, the pride we, we rightfully have in our in effort to turn the war to help Europe, you can take all those feelings that we have and assume that the common Russian citizen has all of those feelings about Russia, but tenfold, mm-hmm. given the sacrifice that they made. And, and, and so that they, very much as a country, view themselves as... Uh, as equals of America, as, as deserving of a place on the world stage, and unfortunately, that one of the ways that, that, that results in is that um, when they have a leader like Putin, who's really willing to push, you know, the importance of Russia, uh, they're willing to turn a blind eye to many of his shortcomings in return for uh, the promise that Russia will be an important country in the world. Why was Count Rostov uh, spared? The book opens with the yep. brilliant uh, tribunal. <laughs> He's he can't resist being a wiseacre. Uh, yeah, that's right. And he, but he is spared and assigned this life uh, in a luxurious hotel, albeit in an attic room. But why didn't they? Uh, why didn't they just shoot him? Shoot him. In, in the conceit of the story, um, he uh, was known for having written a poem uh, ten years before the revolution. Um, as a younger man, that was very popular with the revolutionary generation. So kind of when it came to the time to decide what to do with him, there was a, a group within the party who said, you know, you can't, that's a guy you can't kill because, cause, you know, he's kind of one of, he was one of us in a way. Mm-hmm. And, and which, by the way, in, in the years before the revolution, that was true. There were many members of the aristocracy or of the wealthy who were in favor of reforms and, and who kind of led reform movements that, that withered. Um, so that, that's, in essence, the, the, the conceit, is that, that because of writing this poem, uh, they, they can't let him loose in society because he's an unrepentant aristocrat, but mm-hmm. they don't want to kill him because of this, this poem he wrote that, that they loved. So, so house arrest is, is the compromise. Now, Having said that, as I said, that's a conceit. It's an invention of mine. Sure. Most Americans would be, I think, surprised to know that, you know, we don't have perfect numbers on this, but probably about a third of the Russian nobility stayed in Russia after the revolution uh, willfully, uh, were not imprisoned uh, permanently or executed, and went on about their lives, and as known to be former princes and countesses and duchesses and dukes. Um, so, so there, there was a large group of the, of the aristocracy that did stay in Russia um, because they loved the country um, and uh, who accepted all kinds of, of in essence, humiliations. Uh, not only the loss of their property and of their social standing, but you know, forced to live uh, in you know crowded uh, apartments with multiple families, forced to take jobs that were uh, beneath them in their youth. Um, and which the communists kind of enjoyed giving them sort of the worst job possible um, in as much as they were willing to give them work. Um, but a lot of those, as I say, those citizens uh, stayed in the country, lived under more humble circumstances, but continued to uh, pursue their lives as best they could. Um, so, so it was not 
it's not a fantastic notion to have a member of the nobility staying in Russia in the Soviet era. Is the success of a gentleman in Moscow delaying your next works? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yes, yes. No. I mean, should you yeah. be writing right now yeah, instead yeah, of talking to some you. yokel in Minnesota? Yeah, no, I was. I mean, I was doing that a few minutes ago, and I'll go back to doing that. <laughs> and you're right. You know, the, the nature of, of writing, um, you know, novels in the modern era is that uh, if the novel, if, if it doesn't capture the imagination of the reading audience then you're not invited to go anywhere, and if you were invited, you shouldn't go, because, you know, there won't be anybody in the room when you arrive. Um, but, but if a book is capturing the imagination of readers, then, then you have an opportunity to go out and to meet with uh, readers around the country. And, and I kind of look at it as, it takes me about four years to write a book. If it's going to take me four years to write a book, then I should be willing to spend up to a year on the road mm-hmm. uh, speaking with readers uh, about the work, um, meeting with them, and and so, yes, the, the, it is a luxury uh, that the success of a book will often result in the delay of your next book. Uh, whereas if the book is, it falls flat, you know, then you might as well go on and start writing the next one as quickly as possible. Where did this come from? Uh, uh, let me preface that by saying I understand, presumably because of your first name, that you, you've been asked what your ethnicity is. Yeah. Well, you're born and bred in Boston. Yeah, and, right? and, and it's kind of a... Uh, uh, Misleading. My, my name Amor means love in Latin. In, right. You know, dating back to Roman times, um, and and the Puritans in New England uh, often preferred naming their children after virtues rather than saints. So you had a tradition in old New England of children being named Patience or Prudence or Courage or uh, you know uh, those kinds of names, and uh, which were virtues, Christian virtues, uh, I guess. And so Amor, uh, which was uh, Latin for love, was a version of that. It was a virtue turned into a name. But so it's an old family name. So it's, not the, I, re- yeah. it's not the result of your parents being whacked out hippies. No, no, that's, that's, that's exactly <laughs> I was born before Woodstock, so yeah, I meant that was not. I'd you, like to say it was that, but it's not. Do you have siblings? Yeah, yes. What are their uh, names? Well, Stokely and Kimbrough, so okay. also unusual. Um but, uh, yeah, so, so my, my, I am not of Russian heritage. That was not the start. And uh, for me, the, uh, I became interested in Russian culture through the Russian novel uh, as a younger man. Uh, I continued to read and study various uh, art movements in Russia in the 19th century and before the revolution, and then sort of life in the, the Soviet era as well. And um, I have been writing fiction since I was a child, but I spent 20 years in the investment field. You went to you went to Yale and then Stanford. Yeah, that's right. And then stayed in the investment banking field for 20 years. That's right. And, what and what it, made you pull the pin on that? Well, you mean what made me go leave it? Yes. To, yeah. Well, I wrote Rules of Civility in my spare time while I was still working in the investment field, and when that book became a bestseller, it seemed like a good time to retire, and mm-hmm. so I did do that. So. Um, but when I was in the investment business, I did travel a good deal, and I was staying in a hotel in Geneva uh, for the seventh year, eighth year in a row, because I used to go kind of back to the same hotels year after year when I would go to see clients. And when I was coming into the hotel, I recognized some of the people in the lobby from the year before once, and that's what got me thinking, what would it be like to live in a hotel? And that sort of started the whole process of me imagining this story. Um, but so but I had that idea, Rules of Civility came out and was successful. I retired uh, from uh, my firm, which was great for a uh, career, and, and then wrote Gentleman Moscow as a full-time writer. And that took you four years to write Gentleman? Well, yeah, three and a half. Yeah. Right. And uh, the ideas uh, are, are not deeply 
ingrained in your fascination of Russia. Uh, let me let me rephrase that. You have no uh, deep seated historical attachment to Russia, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah it's it, it's it's. I tend to write my fir- my first novel, Rules of Civility, uh, is about a twenty five year old uh, working class uh, young woman in New York City in nineteen thirty eight, and um, I was not raised in New York. Uh, I'm obviously not. <laughs> I was not a woman of working class background, um, but the. Uh, I've been a fan of the 1920s and 30s in America since I was a teenager. Why? You know, like, Why do you think? Well, you know, I started probably watching the movies like mm-hmm. so many. You know, movies of the great movies of the 30s. You know, the early Catherine Hepburn and you know Cary Grant movies and uh, uh, you know that type of film. And that got me. I was interested in jazz music of the 30s. I was, I was of course, a fan of Fitzgerald and Hemingway. You know, mm-hmm. the writing in America in the 20s and 30s. So, so for all those reasons. Uh, you know, I, I, I just consumed the culture of the 20s and 30s throughout my, my late teens, my 20s, my 30s. And, and so it was very natural for me to set a story in New York City in that time period. What, um, are, you wor- what are you working on now? Now my, my current novel is about three 18-year-old boys who are on their way from Nebraska to New York City in 1954. So you're moving, you're moving up in the 20th century. <laughs> yeah, turn the dial. That's right. <laughs> Uh, and how far away are you from completion? About three years. Probably. Really? Probably, you know, two and a half. Maybe. What's your writing, what's your daily schedule like? I'm, uh, I'm usually at my desk, you know, nine to noon writing, and then I will generally live in New York City. I will take my writing from the morning to the bar of a restaurant where I will have lunch and edit my work from the morning, or I'll take out my notebooks and begin the work of the following day. And so nine to two is my most active time of writing. It's kind of a, you know, Monday through Friday kind of adventure. Mm-hmm. And the afternoon, it gets a little bit more mixed. Mm-hmm. Are, you, uh, are you heavily influenced by any authors? I'm 54. Because I haven't read anything like your book, so I couldn't imagine who it would be. Well, that's nice of you to say. Um, you know, I, I'm 54, and so I'm influenced by many people, and maybe that's why you have that impression, because it's not, I'm not writing in the tradition of a, a, a novelist. I am I'm kind of writing at a point in my life where I've had the luxury of, of studying and loving the work of many different writers. Um, you know, probably my three favorite books are uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace, mm-hmm. Herman Melville's uh, Moby Dick and uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. And all three of those books tend to have a very significant sweep to them. So A Gentleman in Moscow, that was a part of the pleasure of that book, is, is to try to cover 30 years, incorporate history, many characters. Uh, you know, that was part of the attraction of doing that project. And I understand that you used episodes from your own life in A Gentleman. For example, I, I reread last night just because I find it so delightful. The great, uh, the great section where they're going to have their secret meal late at night, and they have to confront the bishop who's wondering what they're up to, and and Emil waves his celery stalk at him, thinking he's wielding his uh, his uh, knife, and he's not. He's grabbed a celery stalk, but I understand you have some cooking or in your background. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot of food in 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 both of my books, and yes, I I, I cook. Uh, I, you know, my first job was working as a dishwasher in a, in a in a restaurant kitchen as a you know as a young teenager, um, but uh, I uh, I cook often for my family and, and so part of the pleasure of of incorporating food into my narratives is often it's 
it's individual dishes that I'm interested in. Um, the, the, you know, that's the bouillabaisse they're making that night, which is something I make for my family kind of uh, every summer. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, earlier in the novel, uh, around Christmas, the Count uh, is observing a young couple who are in a sort of a date, and they're ordering a Latvian stew, which right. the Count then orders for himself uh, for, for Christmas Eve. And, and I make that dish. Actually, if you go, if you go to Google and search Amor Toll's Latvian stew, it will take you to that recipe and an essay on it. <laughs> and it's been fun because, you know, book groups around the country will occasionally adopt, you know, will you know, reach out to me and say, you know, we made the stew for, your, the, for the book group. And, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, you know, it, I think it's very natural for me to have food be a part of narrative. And, you know, it's funny, I, I, going around the country, you'll have people will raise their hand and say, you know, why do you write about food so much in your, in your stories? And, and in a way, I, what's struck, shocking to me is that it doesn't happen in more books because you think about how important food is in our daily lives. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the center point of our fa- where our families gather at night or where, the, where our extended families gather over holidays. And, you know, we save up to go to fine nights and, you know, dates and restaurants and anniversaries and restaurants and build feasts around Christmas or, you know, or Hanukkah. So it is funny that how important food is in our daily lives. Yet, yet it is true. There are many novels where, you know, not, there is not a meal described. How proud of you, or of how proud are you of the fact that you managed to work Casablanca into this novel? Yeah, no, I, I'm, a, I'm a, <laughs> right. So going, yeah, going back to my love of the 20s and 30s, I'm a big Bogart fan. Yep. And so you're right. I, I had this. Uh, it is true that the the Soviet uh, the authorities under Stalin, including Stalin himself, were big fans of American movies. Stalin particularly loved the western. Um, and so I sort of had this notion, oh, it would be fun to, to, to have uh, the Count talking with a uh, you know, senior member of the party, watching American films as, as, as this member of the party is trying to understand mm-hmm. Western life and culture. And, and so then you can kind of pick whatever movie you want uh, to, to make that point. But it, so it was a thrill for me to sort of, oh, it should be Bogart. Um, I initially thought it was going to be multi-Falcon, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. But, but the farther I got into it, I realized you know, it wasn't working. And then you kind of have one of these moments, these flashes. I'm like, oh, my God, of course, Casablanca, that's what it should be. Well, you needed the line round up the usual suspects. Because <laughs> well, I get to play a role near the end of the book. Yeah. And, and, you know, of course, we're, we're, most of us have seen Casablanca. If you think of that movie, uh, it's in the midst of, you know, the war, a time of great turmoil. And Casablanca is kind of an oasis in the war, as it were, for the time being. And, uh, and Rick's Cafe is, is an oasis within the oasis, you know, a place where people from all over Europe who are on the run, uh, for the moment they're safe in Casablanca, they're going to the bar to, uh, to eat, drink, listen to music, you know, put aside for a second their anxieties. And, and, and that ends up being a very nice parallel with, uh, with uh, the Metropole Hotel and Gentleman Moscow, because in the sort of the height of the, this challenging period for the Russian citizenry, that hotel was in fact, an oasis of music and food and, and uh, you know, liberty of various kinds. Well, the very fact that Count Rostov would become a mentor uh, to this state uh, party official, that's yet another example of his rising above the fray, right? Yeah, that's right. He, he, he views himself as, you know, someone is saying, I'd like to learn these things from you, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, he, 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 is, he says, all right, yeah, sure, I am willing to share with you my viewpoints, um, and, you know, sees that as a natural course of events, as a civil, you know, the, kind of out of that tradition of, uh, of the, the idea of civil society, that opponents, it's important for them to sit down and speak in a civil fashion, 
and that it, in many ways uh, you, you, you do that because you believe that that is the best way in which you may shape the views of your opponents um, and, and maybe even change the, change the course of events. Um, and, and so the animosity is not going to speed that process, and, and civility could in the eyes of, of that sort of traditional gentleman. So, yeah, he absolutely follows that strategy. Wouldn't that be great if we were enjoying that today? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we are, that is a, we are in short. That is in short supply currently, and you know, America's had uh, decades where that was a, a very important part of American uh, both political discourse and public discourse. And uh, you know, there were there were times where the, the Senate was you know they they was great uh, um, respect for the the way in which they dealt with each other, and and you know, and, and I think we will we will have that era again, but we certainly don't have it right now. What do you do uh, to let off the steam of writing? What do you do for uh, exercise or pleasure or to get away from the written word? Yeah, I, you know, I, uh, I, I, uh, living in New York City, we certainly, you know, it's a, it's a town full of music and, and art and, and, uh, and restaurants, and, and uh, we and I make use of all of those. Um, I do uh, do some treadmill running, and, and to tell you the truth, as a, as a writer, if I'm stuck... Um, almost invariably, uh, the place where I figure out, you know, how to solve a problem in the novel is is when I'm not thinking about it and I'm running. You know, it mm-hmm. could be 20 minutes into the run, I'm not thinking about it all, and all of a sudden it'll, I'll say, oh, you know what, this is what should happen, not that, and that would solve all these issues and would be more true to the characters and et cetera. Um, so, so it is, I do find it valuable to take that time away from uh, the attentiveness of writing in order to let sort of fresh ideas present themselves. When you announced to Mrs. Towles that you were leaving the investment banking field to become a full-time writer, how did she take it? Well, the uh, Rules of Civility had already been a bestseller, so I, I, had, that as, <laughs> I had that going That's for me. That's not a bad card in your pocket. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think if I, if, I, if I had left the business to say, listen, I'm going to go write my first book ever you know, to, you know, and try to make a go of that, she, she probably would have been very... <laughs> Anxious and skeptic of, of of that announcement, but yeah. So I save that for later. Uh, is New York your favorite place? Do you think you'll remain living there? I, you know, I think it's it's not for everybody, and I, there's many parts of the country I adore. Uh, you know, it's very we 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 see ourselves. I'm I'm 54, as I said, but we certainly see ourselves spending our our our, our older age here because one of the great things about New York City, if you're in your 70s, is that you anything that you want. You know, purchase can be brought to your door, and mm-hmm. you are a taxi cab away from, you know, the the symphony, from uh, a fine restaurant, or from a hospital if you need to be. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, it's the nature of it is that you're in a place where it's, uh, you know, you can get to anything very quickly. Well, I feel very honored that you uh, you gave up your time for this. I better let you get back. Do you do you well, write longhand or on a computer? I do a little bit of both. Okay. Well, best of luck to you, and I can't wait to talk to you again. It was just, Thanks it just... for all your enthusiasm, Joe, and I look forward to talking to you next time. All right. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. All right. Hey, more towels. I've been waiting to do that for two years. I know you have. Mm. We finally got it. That was a very uh, a charming interview. He is a uh, he's a uh, uh, interesting cat, isn't he? I, I didn't have the, uh, the nerve, nor should I have said, but I got to think. He made a killing in the investment business. Oh, I'm that, sure. That, that allowed, and that, not to mention that Rules of Civility became a bestseller while he was still banking. So that's why I asked him about it, the wife. I thought the wife might have gone after him with a rolling pin. But It's uh, not like you going to the CEP saying, I'm going to write a book about trees that talk to each other. Right. And she kind of says, well, let's, let's not do that and see what happens. Why don't, don't we quit com- your day job? No, yeah. why don't we come back in just a moment?
University of Garage Logic 98. College of Self Esteem. Zip. Nada. Nothing. Here's Joe Suchere. Got to wait three years to talk to Amor again. What was his brother's name? I forgot already. I was really impressed, and now I can't remember. Um, After listening to the podcast. His two siblings, they both have cool names. What a neat... I did not know that, uh, about that old ancient New England tradition. Amor, yeah. Of of naming people after... uh, what, virtue? I came up with a few of my own, but I uh, decided they're not even arable <laughs> yeah, on a podcast. Right but, but one of them is this, and the other one is oh, this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you can't air those. The no. uh, off-site correspondent, Jordy, yes? uh, sent me an email. This is why we fight. And he linked it to a story that says... More than 6,000 soldiers were in Reykjavik, Iceland, for four days participating in the Trident Juncture 18, a NATO-led military exercise. After their drills, the troops reportedly visited the city's downtown bars where they finished off the entire town's beer supply. Nice. Everything went. This is why we fight. (laughs) According to Icelandic magazine Visser, the brewery Olgero Eagles Skalagsmukimshmarmishmur had to send emergency beer cases to the bars. That's a good crisis. When you hear the sirens in the street, and all it is is a beer truck. Yeah. <laughs> they call out the local volunteer right. fire department. <laughs> Bar owners repeat, uh, reportedly said they have never experienced a situation similar to this. The soldiers first came into the port on Wednesday night and left Sunday, but managed to drink the entire time they were visiting. Since the soldiers departed, the bars have restocked their supply. <laughs> this is why we fight. Nice. Um, uh, my son was reading the uh, uh, book by... Governor Tim Pawlenty, a, cur- a Courage to Stand, an okay. American Story. I okay. bet that's a belly jiggler. Well, he, anyway, he was he was reading. And he, oddly enough, he just told me this yesterday, and he he wow. there was a paragraph in the book. He could have be reading a gentleman in Moscow. Right, right. But there was a paragraph in the book about uh, Governor Pawlenty growing up in South Saint Paul and how they had milkmen, you know, milk trucks to come by. Yeah, I'm very familiar with it. But he said also on 12th Avenue South we had. A beer guy, mm-hmm. and he worked at the brewery, and he would take the old beer, and maybe it was damaged a bit, you couldn't sold in stores, and he would go maybe on a Friday afternoon from house to house to deliver beer. I that- would imagine a damaged container as opposed to a tainted beer. Yeah, oh yeah, that's what yeah, I mean. This like one a, tastes a little like skunk. Yeah. <laughs> wrong with this one? <laughs> Running around the plant there before we could get it out. <laughs> this one's got floor cleaner in it. Yeah, this one we call dead mouse. Right. <laughs> but they weren't even, it, nobody even ordered beer. If the beer truck was out there and your dad was home, he'd go out there. Like the ice cream truck. Yeah, yeah buy yeah. a case of beer, and then the beer guy would sit and have one beer with every guy that he sold with. Oh, yeah. So by the end of the route, I'm sure he was doing complete zigzags. <laughs> Well, the milkman used to leave a case out on your stoop. Yeah. That's where my sister put the rabbit she got for yeah. Easter overnight and then came out the next morning and was four feet up in the air frozen like well. a hockey puck. <laughs> yeah. What happened to the milkman, though? Why They're still around, actually. There's some, yeah. yeah. Yep. They're still Boy, I haven't seen one in ages. Yeah, they, they, there's still a few guys. Maybe up in your rural area. No, actually, they're based right over here on the other side of the tracks. Well, there's really? a, there's a joint in Plymouth, right? The uh, Oak Grove. Uh, Oak Grove, right. I've heard of that. But yeah. what's the concept? What, why did we need... It's the same uh, thing, fresh milk daily, you dumb dumb. No, no, but wasn't it available at the grocery yes, store? Yes, it was. I, 
Uh, I don't know the answer to your question. Oh. I don't know why. Straight from the teat to your house. Because by that logic, there should have been a meat man. But I guess there was, wasn't well, there? Well, the meat salesman that would come by with the trench coat and say, I got fillets, I got ribeyes, and the whopper. <laughs> I got this roll of baloney. Let's get back to literature, please. Aren't you and thank you all for just shutting the hell up. Oh, it was up. very difficult when he was talking about the stew. I wanted to chime in. I looked online. And the stew looks fabulous. Yeah. A gentleman in Moscow, Latvian stew. It yeah. looks delicious. Is it like uh, Hasenfeffer? Yeah, no, it's like pork what, shoulder. What blew us away is that we were having a discussion about Humphrey Bogart yeah. and movies. Mm-hmm. And not four minutes later, you guys were having the same discussion. But it came from two different places. Yeah, it really did. It was really odd. And then one second after you asked him how old he was, mm-hmm. Reavers goes, how old is this guy anyway? Yeah. To prove that he wasn't really quite listening to the broadcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we contributed some money into the uh, yeah. There's a, brain scan. Without giving it away, there's a scene towards the end of the book where uh, the Count is, is plotting his escape. Okay. And the time has come for him. He's put, he's put a number of things in motion. He's, a, he's been entrusted to raise a child in this hotel because uh, he befriended the child's mother. It's not his daughter, but okay. he raises her. And in the meantime, he's he's had an ongoing love affair with a famous Russian uh, actress. Okay. Uh, but he so he's bringing all these pieces together, and he's plotting his his leave of the metropole after twenty five thirty years. He's going to pull this off. And given given what we've learned about him during the book, there's no doubt that he's going to succeed. But uh, once the uh, once the party gets aware of this. Uh, the fellow he had mentored about Western civilization mm-hmm. is informed of this. And it was within his power to maybe crack down a little harder on the Count's uh, whereabouts. Right. But he just told his people, round up the usual suspects. Because <laughs> <laughs> one of the movies uh, one of the movies the Count helped him understand was Casablanca. Uh, okay. So he stole a little page. <laughs> round up, meaning... Yeah. Meaning my friend is going to be He's okay. He's going to be gone. He's going to be okay. Round up the usual. Yeah, I figured that out. Thanks. And well, how do you say, uh, play it again for me, Sam, in Russian? I have no idea. No. Uh, let's get back Let's get back to literature. Derek writes, a week or so ago, I think you mentioned PBS's <laughs> The Great American Read, where PBS made a list of the top 100 books in America and then did an eight-part documentary series about them. Did you notice what book made it to number, to number one? To Kill a Mockingbird. I couldn't help but wonder, whatever happened to the big stink that the Duluth Public Schools put up about To Kill a Mockingbird? Well, not only Duluth, it, all over the country, the failed academy has, has pretended to reject To Kill a Mockingbird. Funny how this book was chosen as the most beloved book by the American public, but yet the few thought police in Duluth seem to know better. I think they need to pull their heads out of the sand. Uh, love the show. I've been listening to the podcast for more years than I can count, especially the last two when my family served as missionaries in Papua New Guinea. We're listened to in New wow. Guinea. Papua New Guinea. The podcast helped me stay connected with everything Minnesota. You could say it was my emotional support podcast. I hope I don't sound too euphorian. My family is planning on returning to New Guinea, and I'll be taking my new Garage Logic pushback T-shirt with me. God bless Derek. Isn't that fantastic? Hmm. Popular books. How were the top 100 books chosen? PBS and the producers worked with the Public Opinion Polling Service, YouGov, to conduct a demographically and statistically representative survey asking Americans to name their most loved novel. Approximately 7,200 people participated, and To Kill a Mockingbird was the outright winner. How did uh, how'd my driver do? 
I don't think it made the top no. 100. Or Mad River, I'm sorry. It, it served us very well, Mad let's put it that way. Do you have the top 10, any chance? I don't. Right I don't. There? I had. I actually had that story last week. Yeah, we I did. F- I forget yeah. what they are. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Should I look them up? Well, I was about to. Why not? PBS top 10 books in America. It shouldn't take long. shouldn't take long. Number one. We already know one. Waterline. Number two. <laughs> there once, once was, was a ballpark. ballpark. <laughs> Modern, three. caring, sensitive male. The phone book. Number four. Okay. Uh, Here we go. Top ten books leading the vote. These books are listed in alphabetical order, not by vote ranking. What? Even well, though, just give us the top okay, ten. Even though we know To Kill a Mockingbird was number one. I just one. want the titles, not editorial comments. Charlotte's Web. <laughs> yep, that's E.B. White. Famous Pig. Chronicles of Nar- uh, Narnia. Didn't read it. Gross. Turkish Delight. Gone with the Wind. Read it. I don't give a damn. Mm-hmm. Harry Potter, the whole series. I read one of those just to see what it was about. You did? Yeah. Gone with the Wind was, uh, that was one of two colored movies in 1939. Mm-hmm. You know the other colored movie? Wizard of Oz. Very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Mm-hmm. Little Women. Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Oh, Outlander, the series by Diana Galbanon. My know. wife's obsessed with that series. With Outlander? Yes. Outlander. Huh. And Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. Then she looks at me and says, oh, I'm stuck with this doof. So yeah. they're not necessarily great literary works. Boy, they strike me as not. Yeah. In 2003, uh, Great Britain's public broadcast, the BBC, uh, had a program, The Great American Read. Here's the final ranking of the top ten books based on all the, the uh, votes that were submitted by British. And these are ranked. Lord of the Rings was number one. Pride and Prejudice, number two. Prejudice. Prejudice, did I say it backwards? Uh, His Dark Materials, number three. Uh, um, I'm not sure what that one is. Uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh-huh. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Mm-hmm. To Kill a Mockingbird, mm-hmm. Winnie the Pooh, mm-hmm. 1984 in slot number eight. Yeah. Number nine, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Animal Farm is better than 1984, if you ask me. Rounding out the lead, uh, number 10 slot is Jane Eyre. Right. Such, so, have you ever read the uh, Ken Follett trilogy? Sure. Uh, you have? Fall oh, yeah. of Giants, Winner yep. of Our World? Yep. I love yep. those three, except for the last one, we get into Ken Follett's personal politics. Which is a bit irritating, but those first two, Fall of Giants and Winter of the World, they're nice and big and fat and long, and every page is delightful. That's what I felt about. That's why I want to talk to Amor Towns. That it's uh, well, if it's that good, why don't you give that book to me so I can? I, I need something to read. <laughs> it's four hundred and sixty-two pages, and every page is a delight. I'm what? reading a book now about Swedish immigrants to uh, this country, and oh, it is! Oh my God, it's impossible to read. I have a book recommendation for so people. Awful. I'm reading it? a guy named Philip Kerr, K E R R, who just died within the last year, oh. and he is he created a, a Berlin police detective named Bernie Gunther. Yeah. And you've read him, John? I have not read him. You uh, mentioned this uh, yeah. before. Oh, my I, God, I, is I bought it good. one, and I have not it's read it really yet. good because Bernie's a smart-ass German, 43 years old. He had served in World War I, also served in World War II, and he's a police detective who's so good that the Gestapo doesn't mind Slow that he down. won't declare himself a Nazi. Oh. He, he just won't do it. He can't stand him. And— uh, uh, it's just he gets away with it. I mean, huh? it's it's really the classic dark and stormy nights in the Austrian Alps with long Mercedes Benz limousines, and it's just it's just really good stuff. But really I like that stuff. kind of character. It reminds me of like a detectives like Marlowe or or somebody like that who the uh, they don't really like them, but they don't 
mind them. He's been uh, Bernie's been compared to Marlos. Oh, has he? Yeah, oh, okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. It's wonderful stuff. Cool. You want to do this again tomorrow, boys? Why not? No, just hell I'm, no. I'm not reading a book about a mystery where a man finds a briefcase, mm-hmm. and in the briefcase, this ought to be good. No, it's uh, it's pretty well known. I don't know. And the guy takes the briefcase. He's not allowed to open it. He doesn't have the the combination for it. And he goes to a private detective. The private detective is very concerned of what's in the box. Uh huh. So they zip around the country. They go across the I'm world. Leaving. And uh, so they, I won't be they try this thing. Week, but so. there's a guy, and he gets involved with this I'll love see affair. In two weeks, Joe. And uh, well, let's let's just leave it at that. I don't want to give away the ending, but uh, I don't remember the name of the book. So we're sorry, all, we're all leaving. Let's uh, let's leave you with a little Halloween. Happy Halloween, Garage Logicians. Here we are, children. Thank you for attending the extracurricular Halloween fun night. I'm Morgan Cuey Wolf Slattery here to get you all prepared for Halloween. Now, first of all, we need to dress appropriately. No violent or condescending costumes. I'm gonna be a cowboy with a big hat and two six shooters at my side. Uh, I don't think I'll have any ammo. It doesn't matter. A cowboy is just wrong on so many levels. Any others? I'm a secretary. I want to be a nurse. Because these are women's jobs? Honestly. Children, there is no trick or treat. Candy is bad for you, and dressing up in inappropriate costumes will give you nightmares. Do not race from house to house. If someone is going slower than you, shine your light ahead and say, Excuse us, passing on the left. Okay, pretend there's someone in front of you. What do you say? Hey, hurry up. We got a lot of potential bounty out here. Oh, children. What do we say on Halloween after ringing the doorbell at a home in our community? Trick or treat, money or eat. Give me some candy or I'll kick you in the seat. Hey, lady, out with the goods. I ain't got all night. No, no, no. Hey, hurry up. Did we scare ya? Hey, lady, do you have I say good? No, no, no. We say wellness and equal opportunity. Wellness and opportunity? I don't even know what that means, you old bailax. Take a tree, Morgan. Q-E. Wolf. Sally. Happy Halloween, All right, happy Halloween, Garage Logic, October 31st version, and thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget, at garagelogic.com, you can learn how to subscribe, and don't forget about Apple iTunes rating us one through five. If Kenny's here, that usually drags the ratings down a little bit, but that's okay. Uh, we'll take it. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. Have a great Halloween, and we will be back tomorrow with another version. The next time. We'll be back the next time with another version of the Garage Logic podcast. Thanks, loyal podcast listeners.